0: You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, good morning. I'm excited to be here with you for week two of our series, Letters to Live By. In this series, here's what we're doing. We're looking at four letters written to four churches all by one man. And we're trying to see what's the one big idea from each of these letters that was true for them then and it's also true for us today. And so if you were here last week, you got to hear one of our pastors, Doug Adams, unpack the book of Galatians in just such an incredible and helpful way. I mean, it was accurate, and it was applicable. It was the best of both worlds. But after he got done preaching last Sunday, he just sent me a simple text and said, Tag, you're it. And then he sent me this picture right here. And uh, it made made me giggle for a couple reasons. I mean, number one, if that's not the splitting image of Doug Adams and myself, I don't know what is. I mean... (laughs) But also, it made me giggle because I don't don't think Doug even realized this, but if you were to ask me, hey Tyler, can you sum up the book of Ephesians in a single picture, honestly this one would be a pretty strong contender up there on the top of the list. And I hope over these next few minutes that you'll be able to see why I say that. Last week, Doug mentioned that there's four questions that we've got to ask to make sure that we're reading these letters correctly. And those questions are who, why, what, and how. And so when it comes to Ephesians, starting with the who, it is again the Apostle Paul. And Paul, you need to understand, has a special relationship with the people of Ephesus. He had spent significant time with them, close to three years, but not just as somebody in their presence. He was their pastor at their church for close to three years before Timothy took over. The church itself is located in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city in the ancient world, among the top five largest cities in the entire world at the time. And while this letter was addressed directly to the Ephesians, there's actually some strong evidence that suggests that this is what was called a circular letter, that it would have been addressed to the Ephesians with the intention that they would then pass this letter to another church, and they would pass it to another church, and so on and so forth. So that's our who, Paul and the Ephesians, but let's talk about why. And this question is interesting to me because there isn't really a reason why Paul writes this letter other than to just be a theology letter. There was nothing major wrong happening at the church. There was no problems to correct. There was no false teaching that he had to call out. But perhaps, when we think about the why, maybe you could look at the city of Ephesus itself. It was, after all, a large port city with lots of diversity in culture and values and thoughts and beliefs and ideals. And what happens when that much diversity collides in one city is not too different than what happens in cities today. See, this city... Had problems. So much so that the book of Acts describes a riot that overtook the entire city. It was a city that needed Jesus. And so Paul knows the city is watching. And this church has a chance to shape a city and paint a picture of something far greater than themselves. And so Paul writes this letter, I believe, to encourage the Ephesians in that pursuit. So that brings us to the what. What does Paul actually want for them? And to find that, we actually need to look at how he structures this letter. Ephesians is really built on a simple argument that who you are determines what you do. Said another way, your activity flows from your identity. And this makes logical sense to all of us, right? Like, I am a husband to Valerie, and so that's my identity. And so there's certain activity, things I do and don't do, because of my identity. I'm a father to Nolan, so there's certain things I do and don't do because of that identity. Activity flows from identity. And remember, Paul... He's a pastor, yes, but he's also a seasoned lawyer, and so he knows how to build an argument. So what he's going to do is he's going to bring this mountain of evidence by saying, hey, this is who you are in Jesus. And after he establishes all of this evidence, he's going to say, now this is what you should do with it. Activity that flows from identity. And last week, Doug, he used a picture of Mount Everest to sort of help us see the structure of Galatians. And so as I think about the book of Ephesians, I can't help but think about one of these right here. Uh, just by a show of hands, how many of you had the privilege of riding on a seesaw when you were younger? Show of hands. Okay. Yeah, th- it's, it's crazy to me. There's a, an entire generation of kids who are never, ever going to get to ride on one of these because I'm pretty sure they're banned from like every playground in the entire world. They're, they're really dangerous. But as a kid, these seesaws were around everywhere. Now, now, if I'm being honest with you, when I was a kid, these were never really fun for me, because, you see, for most of my life, if I'm standing next to another person, there's a 95% chance that I am the smaller of the two people, and so, seesaw rides normally lasted about five seconds for me. I would get on, and the other kid would get on, and I'd go up, and I'd stay stuck at the top until the other kid decided to get off, and I'd come crashing to the ground, and that was a seesaw for me, and... Uh, You know, personal feelings aside, it's the design of a seesaw that I really think about when I think of Ephesians. It's six chapters long, and the first three chapters on this side is all about our identity. This is who you are in Christ. It's just all identity building. So much so that for three chapters, there's not going to be one single command except for one. Remember, Paul's going to give one command in the first three chapters, remember who you are in Jesus. And so if the first three chapters are one side of the seesaw, then certainly the second three chapters are the other side of the seesaw. And this is where Paul says, okay, this is who you are. Now this is what you should go do. And he goes from this beautiful identity building on this side where he just gives them one command to all of a sudden on this side, he's just rattling off command after command after command, close to 60 different commands depending on how you break it up. And if I'm honest, when I read the second half of Ephesians, it can kind of look just like a big random list of commands. Do this. Don't do that. Be like this. Not like that. Look out for this. Don't do that. He talks about anger. He talks about greed. He talks about our words. He talks about wives and husbands, kids and parents, servants and masters. And, and it's easy to feel like, man, Paul, I was tracking with you with the first three chapters, but now all of this, uh, just it feels like a big list of random rules to me. But thinking back to this seesaw analogy, there is one more part of a seesaw that is vital There is in the middle of the two sides of a seesaw one singular point where that seesaw finds its balance. And the book of Ephesians is no different. There is a moment, a point right smack dab in the middle of this book that brings both of these sides into perfect balance. And so, for the next few minutes, I just want to look at the identity side of the seesaw as Paul builds into this one singular moment in the middle. So starting in chapter one, Paul is just going to jump immediately into this identity building, this shared identity. You know, normally Paul would give some long extended intro where he'd introduce himself and he would talk to some people that he knows, but, but here he absolutely wastes no time. He jumps right into it. And if you were to ask me, After reading all of Ephesians 1, to sum it up in a single sentence, I would say that Ephesians 1 is all about how God makes the first move. All through chapter 1, Paul is just going to keep saying, God makes the first move. God makes the first move. He he makes this argument that who God is and what he has done is independent of who we are. That God does not act in response to you and I. He acts on behalf of you and I. And we see that in verses like... Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 where it says this, God has now revealed to us in his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And here's the plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything on heaven and earth. This was God's good plan. Jesus was always the plan. Jesus was not the backup plan. He was not plan B. He was not the break glass in case of emergency plan. Jesus always was plan A, that through Jesus and by Jesus and because of Jesus, everything in heaven and on earth would be brought into perfect unity. And it was God's plan to do that. It was not our plan to do that. And so if Ephesians 1 is all about how God makes the first move, then Ephesians 2 is that God makes things whole. Here's how chapter two starts. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, that spirit who is now at work in all of those who are disobedient. And he says this, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul paints a pretty grim picture here. He says you were dead in your sin, that we were deserving of wrath, that all of us have given in to our sinful desires, our sinful cravings. In essence, what he is saying is we're all broken beyond repair. We're not just broken. We are broken beyond all repair. But the beautiful thing is that God takes broken things and he makes them whole. And we see that in the very next verse says this in verse four, but God who is rich in mercy and full of love made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us by Christ Jesus. And notice it doesn't say, but you, being rich in your righteousness, it doesn't say, but you, being strong in your spirituality, it doesn't say, but you, being great in your works, it says, but God, being rich in mercy and full of love, made us alive in Christ Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection had the power to take something that was dead and make it alive. It has the power to take something that was broken and make it whole. Like Doug was saying last week, it's not Jesus plus something. It's just Jesus, period. And then Paul drops the single, most famous, profound, and important piece of our identity in the whole book right here in verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no man can boast. And what we see is that what Jesus has done is a gift. It is not anything that we can achieve by any measure of an achievement. It is only something that can be received. And this is the shared identity of all of us. Of anybody who has ever or is currently or will ever follow Jesus, this is who you are. We're all on equal footing so that no man can boast. This is the one thing we all have in common. And so if chapter 1 is that God makes the first move, and chapter 2 is that God makes things whole, then chapter 3 has to be God is not done. As chapter 2 builds into chapter 3, What you're going to read is you're going to see that that God breaks down this wall that exists between his people, the Jews, and the people that are far from him, the Gentiles. And he breaks down this wall through Jesus as he's building one unified people for himself. And chapter 3 shows us that the same God who started that work is the same God who's continuing that work. Here's what it says in verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you'll be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him, who's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. To him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus through all generations forever, amen. He talks about strength. He talks about growing. He talks about being filled. He talks about a power that's at work in us. And we see that God is not done. God loved you so much to save you right where you are. And he loves you way too much to leave you where you are. And so for three chapters, Paul just loads up one side of the seesaw with, this is who you are. God made the first move. God makes things whole. God's not done. And and remember, his whole argument is that activity is going to flow from this identity. So he's about to load up the activity side of the seesaw. But before he does, as he makes the transition, he stops right in the middle And he focuses on the one thing that's going to bring the two sides into balance. And here it is right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, meaning everything I just wrote, here's why it's there. Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. So based on everything I just wrote based on all these big, incredible, awe-inspiring, magnificent truths about who God is and who you are because of him, based on all of this, he says, live a life worthy of this. That term worthy, it literally means live a life that balances the scales. let's be clear about something. There is nothing you or I could do to balance the scales with what Jesus has done for us. Paul knows this. He's written about it at length in all of his letters. But what he is saying is that we ought to recognize the scales are not balanced. And we ought to live our life in response to how unbalanced those scales are. And so whatever he says after this has got to be big, right? I mean, if he's going to say live a life that balances the scales, live a life worthy, it's got to be huge. It's got to be monumental. I I would expect what comes next is live a life worthy by laying down your life for somebody else. Or I'd expect, hey, live a life worthy by selling everything you have, moving to another country, giving it to the poor, and doing nothing but preaching the gospel for the rest of your life. But here's what it says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And what Paul is saying is that in response to everything he just spent three chapters writing about, in response to everything that God has done for us through Christ Jesus, what does he want for us first and foremost? He wants us to get along. He wants us to tolerate each other and bear with one another and and just try to play nice with one another. And listen, as I read that, I want you to know I'm with you. I'm in the same boat. I read that and I'm like, man, that that seems anticlimactic. Like, really, Paul? You're gonna you're gonna build to this moment, and that's what you're gonna write? Hey, just get along, guys. It seems anticlimactic. That is until you look around at the world, and you even look around at some of us, and it puts it into perspective how hard this really is. You see the polarization. You see the abuse, you see the fighting. And what Paul is saying here isn't as actually as easy as it seems. That naturally, left to our own devices, we are going to be at each other's throats about anything and everything. And we realize what's normal in a broken world is disunity. And what's actually a rare commodity is unity. And Paul knows it's not easy to get along It doesn't just happen naturally. It takes a power that's outside of us. And so what Paul is saying is that the same power that I just spent three chapters writing about, the same power that's at work in you to bring unity between you and God should now be the same power that's at work in you to bring unity among one another in a world that's anything but unified. That unity in our vertical relationship with God influences unity in our horizontal relationships with one another. And he doubles down on it in the very next verse. He says, For there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven things he lists off there. And Paul's a smart guy. He knows that that number seven, it's the number of completeness and wholeness. And so he says, hey, we should be unified. And then he gives this number seven, seven things to show complete unity. He just says, let's be unified because we got one, 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 one thing that brings us together. And what Paul is reminding the Ephesians of is that the things that unite us are infinitely more powerful than anything that's ever gonna divide us. And let's be honest, there are a lot of things that could divide us. There's a lot of things that do divide us. But he's saying there is something that is way bigger and way better that unites us. And left to our own devices, we are going to drift toward disunity and toward dysfunction. But our shared identity of being saved by grace, through faith in Jesus, ought to bring unity with God and unity with one another. And that's so radically different than the world around us. And what you need to know is that everything else written in the final three chapters of Ephesians all hinges on this idea of unity. None of it will make sense without understanding this idea. Remember, Paul's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about greed. He's going to talk about our words. He's going to talk about the dynamics of wives and husbands, kids and parents, servants and masters. And all of it is centered around the idea of maintaining unity in Christ because the things that unite us are infinitely more powerful than anything that could ever divide us. I just think it's important to note one thing. Unity does not mean uniformity. After all, I mean, it's not really spectacular. It's not really incredible to get a group of people who all think and talk and act and dress and look the same way to get along. But when a diverse group of people from different backgrounds different walks of life, different experiences, different ideals who look different and talk different and act different when a group of diverse people can come together and they can be unified despite their differences. That's another story altogether. That's a powerful story that speaks to all of us. Uh, I, I happen to love movies, and right now if you were to go, pull up a list of the top 100 grossing films of all time. And just look down that list. You're going to see over and over and over again the same story being retold in lots of different ways. A group of diverse people who are coming together united by something greater than themselves. We love that story. There is something about that story that speaks to our inner being, and the world needs to hear that story. And I believe that Ephesians, at its core, is teaching us that God is building in us he is building in us. He's building a unity of diversity that's all centered around a shared identity. And it's a story that speaks not only to us, it's a story that speaks to the world. The diverse group of people can come together united by a power greater than themselves and the world will not be able to help but notice that. God is building in an us. And I can think of three reasons why he would wanna do that right off the top of my head. Number one, I think he's doing it for his glory. Going back to Ephesians 1, he talks about it's his plan. So his plan of bringing all things together in unity is ultimately for his glory. He doesn't do anything that isn't bringing him glory. Number two, just like we said, it's for the world. That it's a glimpse to the world of a power that's at work in us. A power that has the ability not only to unite people, but to unite sinners with God. But there's a third reason here that Paul spends the rest of this section talking about. God wants to build an us for us. You know, I've been a small group leader over the years, and something I always tell all of my small groups often is that one of the greatest gifts that God has given us is us. I don't know if you think about it that way, but you and I together, we are one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. It's us, And Paul shows us that in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. He's saying that Jesus himself has given communities of faith like ours, leaders who pour into people week in and week out. Why? So that we can equip each other and build each other up and play our part in unity. One of the greatest gifts God has given us is us that we can work together and move together and serve together so that we build each other up and become more mature and we grow in our maturity and our faith and we look more and more like Jesus in every aspect of our life. It makes me sad because as you look around the world around us and you look at literature and and papers and surveys, um, you'll see there's a growing number of people who are walking away from communities of faith. That number continues to rise. And yet, the number of people who maintain that they are spiritual, that they believe in a spirituality and a spiritual force and a God, that number remains the same. In fact, some years that number actually goes up. And so, what we are seeing is that more and more people are desiring to live a spiritual life, but they want to do it in such a way where they don't have to bother with the unity that God is building here among us. And literally, they're saying, I want to be spiritual. I just don't want to have to deal with all of you guys (laughs) and completely miss out on the primary gift that God has given us to grow our faith. And let's not not mistake this and think that we're just talking about people who are disconnected physically because I think every single person in this room, you know what it's like to be somewhere physically physically. But in your soul, in your spirit, mentally and emotionally, you're miles away somewhere else. And that's one of the great dangers for all of us. That we might go through the motions of simply getting our body to a location on Sunday morning, and we'll completely miss out on connecting at the level that Paul says we ought to connect with one another. God is building an us. And he finishes it off with this in verse 14. When he builds this, this us among us, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every teaching and every cunning and craftiness and people of their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who's the head. That's Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. God is building in us for our benefit. And we've all got a part to play in this. Paul is gonna use the imagery of a body that's joined together, unified by Christ, but each member of the body is doing its own work to build each other up in love. We've all got a part to play in this. And Paul, he uses the, the imagery of a, a body here, but I like to think of the imagery of a puzzle. Uh, my wife loves to do jigsaw puzzles. And when I say she likes to do jigsaw puzzles, I don't mean she just enjoys them. I mean she's absolutely obsessed with doing jigsaw puzzles. Um, I mean, you come over to my house any night of the week, chances are there's going to be a jigsaw puzzle being worked on. She can do a thousand-piece puzzle in less than a day. She doesn't get out of bed for anything less than a 500-piece puzzle. That's just the way she is. I mean... Puzzles really are her favorite pastime, which is convenient because one of my favorite pastimes is messing with my wife. And so there's a beautiful intersection that can happen between the two things. So I I like to mess with her when she's doing puzzles. So one of the things I like to do, I'll I'll go up and I'll grab a single piece and I'll grab that piece and I'll, I'll put it wherever it needs to go and then I'll walk away. And as I'm walking away, I'll say something like, I could tell you needed my help with that. Or I'll say, hey, I can't wait to tell everybody about this puzzle that you and I completed together. And it drives her crazy. But I've recently found an even better way to mess with her. The last several puzzles she's completed, she's gotten to the end and and she'll look down and she'll see that she's missing one or two or three pieces and she'll begin to go frantically looking everywhere for it. She'll flip over cushions and look under the couch, under plants. She'll move things around. She'll try to find these puzzle pieces, not realizing that I've been taking them and putting them in a Ziploc bag and keeping them. (laughs) Sorry, Valerie. Um... But it's so funny just watching her get so frazzled, looking down and and she's missing the pieces of the puzzle. It's almost there, it's almost complete, it's almost what it should be, but it's just not quite there. And why do I bring that up? When it comes to us, we are like a puzzle. And every single one of us is a unique piece in that puzzle. No two pieces look exactly the same. And, and, and on our own, there's nothing really remarkable about an individual puzzle piece, but when those puzzle pieces come together to create the picture that they're supposed to be, it's beautiful. And, and, and as I think about my wife with those puzzles, and she's missing a few pieces, I mean, you can tell what it's supposed to be, and the picture's almost there, but you can also feel it. You also know that there's something missing, and that's us. And we need you. We do. We need you. You have a part to play. You've got gifts to use. You've got a role in a picture that's way bigger than just you. And when you're not here, when you're disconnected physically, emotionally, spiritually, we feel it. We need you. And I know, especially during a season like summer, it's, easily, it's easy to disconnect. Yes, physically, we all go away during the summer. But, but even emotionally, even spiritually, it's, it's easy to disconnect. And that's Okay. It's okay that that happens, but I just want to caution us by saying, look, I I know that what can happen so easily if we're not careful is a week turns into a few weeks. A few weeks turns into a month, and months turns into more months, and months eventually become years, and we feel it when you're not here. And coming up as we head into August, we're going to talk a lot about what it looks like to be all in here, but I just want to say we need you. You have a part to play. And on the flip side, I'll say this, you need us. Because we might be like a puzzle missing some pieces where you can almost see the picture, but it's just not quite right. But you without us are like a puzzle piece that's just thrown in a bag. And the purpose that God designed you for is just lying dormant in there, not being used. And you're a picture of something, but nobody can tell what you're a picture of. See, we need you, and you need us. It's hard for us without you. It's devastating for you without us. Because we, us, together, are the primary gift that God has given us to build each other up. So we said at the beginning, we've got four questions that we've got to answer. Who, why, what, and how. And as you read the rest of the book of Ephesians... Paul's going to tell us all about how we live at unity with one another. He's going to give us close to 60 ways that we do it. But remember, all of that activity, it flows from an identity. And all of that activity finds its meaning when we live out what Paul says in Ephesians 4, chapter 1, that we would live a life worthy of the calling that God's placed in our life. And how do we do that? We live a life worthy by being in unity with one another, being committed to the fact that God is building in us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. And God, thank you first and foremost for the gift of your son. But God, I also wanna just say thank you for us. God, I believe with all of my heart that one of the greatest gifts you've given us is us. Because we need each other, God, we do. And so right now, Father, in this place, I pray that for those of us who are disconnected physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, God, whether it's just been a couple weeks or whether it's been years, God, I pray that you would draw us back to living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would bear with one another, we would be patient with one another, and we would seek unity with one another around our shared identity. And God, as we enter into a time of worship, I pray that we would worship you with one voice and one spirit. That we would be in one accord and that, God, our worship would be pleasing to you because of that. God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.